Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Just quickly, by a show of hands this morning, how many have ever gone like to one of these um, timeshare presentations? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we get these every once in a while. You know, you get this deal in the mail and, it, you know, it's, you know, come try out our resort, you know, five days and, and, and uh, you know, meals and all this stuff for $200 only, you know. And, and so you get there and, and uh, you know, check the place out and it's, it's usually really gorgeous, really nice, you know. And then, of course, you always got to do like the two-hour presentation. And uh, you think, well, you know, for 200 bucks, you get three nights lodging, you get all this, you know, meal tickets and all this kind of stuff. I can go sit for a couple of hours. So you go through and you sit through and you, you're welcomed in, first of all, you know, and you're given, Mr. Jensen, how are you this morning? What can I do for you? Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like some, you know, and they want to feed you and they're taking care, really good care of you. And, uh, you know, they go through the whole presentation and we always go into these things, you know, determined ahead of time, the answer is going to be no, whatever it is. And I got to be honest with you, they kind of start wearing me down. <laughs> Betty is really, really good at saying no. You know, we're just, we're going through the whole thing. And I'm starting to think, well, you know, maybe we could do that. You know, maybe this is you. No, not interested. You know, and the guy kind of stops. He goes, well, you know, you get, if you don't want the whole unit, you, know, you can buy, you can purchase a half a unit. You know, now that you can, per- have you noticed that? You can purchase half of the, the unit for half of the year or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, and she says, nope, not interested. Nope, putting kids through college, can't afford it. Nope, putting on a wedding this year, can't do it, you know. And just about the time I'm ready to say yes, she just cuts them all off. She's really good at that. You know, I'm glad I got her along because I would have bought five or six of these things by now. <laughs> but have you ever noticed when you go through this that as it becomes more and more clear that you're really not going to buy into this thing, how the kind of the relationship with the salesperson changes? You ever notice that? I mean, I know they are taught to probably, you know, will always smile, still be courteous and everything, but you can see inside their whole attitude towards you is changing. And the guy that used to be like your new best friend and you were a distinguished guest at his condo here, you know, all of a sudden he's got a little bit of resentment building up and it starts to come across in the way he starts talking to you. You know, and all of a sudden the relationship changes. And that's not just, you know, in time trade, that's like in any sales, you go to buy a car. Oh yeah, your new best friend until you decide, no, I don't want that. Or you buy the car and then you go back to have it serviced and all of a sudden you're a nobody again. Who do you trust? You know, you get these relationships and people seem to be interested in you until it becomes clear that you don't have anything to offer them. And the relationship changes. What I find in most relationships, when it comes down to this whole idea of who do you trust or who can you trust, it comes down to two per, pretty much two main factors. The one is the depth of the relationship. How well do I know this person? How well do they know me? And then secondly, what is their intent towards me? And it's usually the people that I trust the most are the people that I know know me the best and have my best interests at heart. We've been going through this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches. And, and he keeps harping on this whole thing about the freedom that you have in Christ. And, and he, it was, this was some of the first converts that Paul had ever had. And he had invested a lot of his life and his time and his energy and his ministry into these people. And yet after he had left, there was another group that came along behind and said, well, okay, yeah, that's good, but the grace of God is good, but you've got to do these certain rituals, you've got to keep these rules, you've got to do all these other things. And Paul is frustrated. 
He says, you know, that's not the way that I talk to you about this stuff. That's not the reality of what I shared with you. And in chapter 3, he continues this, beginning in verse 23, he says, he talks about this whole idea, this life that we have in Christ now, this life of freedom is all about faith. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to trusting. Verse 23 says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slave to those who are, not, who are by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted all my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers. Become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God. As if I can testify that as if I were Christ himself, what has happened to all your joy. I can testify that if you had done so, could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. How have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He said, I don't understand you guys. What we talked about and what I shared with you and what you received from me was all about faith. It was all about trusting. It was all about receiving what God has already done for you. Why do you want to keep slipping back into that old routine? I don't understand this, he said. You trusted me back then. You put your trust in Christ. Why are you so quick to abandon your trust and go back to trying to earn your way with God? Christ has come to set us free from all of that. And yet our human nature, we are no different than the Galatians. We want some security in this whole thing. And there's something about earning my way. There's this, there's this kind of this false impression that if I can control the relationship with God, then I'm really free. But the truth of the matter is, the freedom only comes when I learn to trust the one who loves me. And that's what Paul keeps going back to. It's a relationship, and it's a relationship of trust. And he says there's some fundamental changes that have taken place now. He says one of the things is, we're no, we are now sons and daughters of God himself. We're no longer slaves. We are his children, his sons and his daughters. That Christ has given us a new identity. In Christ you are all children of God, through faith, he wrote. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Son, daughter, my child. Those are words of relationship. 
It is the freedom to be a person in relationship to God. And there's a certain passivity to all of that. There's a trusting passivity to all that. Not many kids I know are worried about paying the bills. You know, my kids never were. I worried about them a lot, you know, but they never did. You know, it's just like, you know, if we were a little bit short of money or we couldn't, you know, if we, they wanted to go out to McDonald's or something and we didn't have the money, so no, no, we don't have the money right now. Well, just go to the ATM. There's this magic machine. You put in a card, you get money out. They didn't understand you had to have money in there, first of all. Kids don't worry about that stuff. They don't worry about the mortgage. Why? Because that's somebody else's worry. It's in their hands. He says, that's your relationship with your father. Understand, there are things you don't have to worry about now. There is a freedom to be able to trust and rely on him. Now, yes, there is an obedience required of us, but it is not the same obedience as a slave, although sometimes it looks like that. I remember one of our, I think it was my son, once said to me, you just wanted to have me so you could have someone to do the chores around the house. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's why we did it. (laughs) No. It's a relationship there. I remember as a kid thinking the same thing about my parents. Oh, yeah, I just got to clean the garage, mow the lawn, you know, all this. Oh, this is a different type of relationship. Obedience is still required, but it's a different type of obedience. He says, as long as we are as an heir is under age, they're no different from slaves. Although they own the whole estate, they're subject to guardians and trustees. So that's what the law was all about. It's a different relationship now. Slaves are considered property, something to be owned. Sons are persons. People to be loved. Slaves have to live up to certain performance expectations. Daughters are in a relationship. It has to do with character and values and development. Slaves endure punishment. Children get discipline. There's a difference between the two. In slavery, there's insecurity. There's no hope. There's no promise. There's no future. You are owned and you will be owned the rest of your life and it will never change. But a child, a child has a future. A child has security. They are being prepared for freedom. That's really what we do with our kids. We don't have our kids to have little slaves to do our bidding. My goal as a parent is to raise up a child to the point where they are self-sufficient and, and on their own, to able to live their own life. And that's very, very different from a slave. Bill Cosby used to go, just go on and on about that. The chief goal of parents is to get the kids out of the house. <laughs> that's the whole idea. And it's very gratifying. And we're kind of at the end of this whole child-rearing stuff, you know. Both of our kids are raised. They're mature adults on their own now. One has gotten married last year. We've got another wedding coming up this. And then we're done. Yeah, they're out of the house. That was our goal all along, to prepare them for life so they could live their own life. And he says, that's the relationship you have now with God. It's not slavery that you will do his bidding and obey and toe the line. He has prepared you for life. And the word of God and the law of God is all to prepare us how to live. That God really wants what is best for you. And that's what you got to understand from 
from the very depth of your being that God's desire for you is only the best. Now, we don't always understand what is best. And that's why we obey, because he does. The obedience that we have now as his children is to lead us to freedom and to life. He says we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was, that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ. Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. It's a big difference. Now in their culture, a, free, a, a slave could be freed. And the way it was done would be either the slave owner or someone who took an interest in that slave would go to the temple and would pay a price. And they would pay that price and say, now this slave has been bought. He is now a free man. She is now a free woman. And with that freedom, you could never be enslaved again. It was a done deal. Finished and complete. And that very same language is what he's using here. We have been redeemed. The price of our life has been paid. Do you want to know what you are worth to God? Look at the price he paid for you. We are children now. Not for what we do for him, but because of who we are. It changes our relationship with him. And it changes our relationship with each other. Because now we are related to each other. We are not rivals in competition against each other. What we discover is there's an essential equality that all of us inherit in God. He says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't like some of his children a little bit better than others. When we were kids, we used to do coloring contests. Did you ever do this with, if, you had more than, if you weren't an only child? You know, we would all take a page from the coloring book and we would all color it. Then we would go to my mom and dad and we'd say, who did best? You ever do that? What was the answer? Oh, they're all just so nice. No, no, no. Who did the best? Who did the best coloring? Oh, you know, it's so hard to judge because they're all so good. And they would give us that line, but I always knew mine was the best. And sometimes that's the way we treat God. God, who do you like best? Who's your favorite? I love them all. Well, yeah, I know, but I'm really your favorite. Or the opposite. I meet so many Christians, so many Christ followers who feel like they just like barely got into the family. Just barely. And they're like at the bottom rung. And God doesn't quite love me the way that he loves other people. And one of the things that Scripture makes very, very clear is God doesn't play favorites. All of our human distinctions disappear. And we love them. We love all of those labels. We love them because they make us feel a little bit better than the person next to us. The church that I grew up in was called a full gospel church, which, of course, meant everybody else only got part of the gospel, you know? And we do that. We do that denominationally. We do that individually. You know, just trying to find a way that I'm just a little bit better, a little more loved by God. And, and it comes out even in our prayers sometimes. You ever done this? You know, I, I listen to other people do this, and I, and I laugh at it, and then I, I do the very same thing. Lord, you know how much I love you. 
Lord, you know how faithfully I've tried to serve you. You know, I'm kind of bargaining with God, kind of, you know, stoking up, all, here's all the listens, why you should answer my prayers. The problem with labels is, the problem with that competition is, we don't understand that we're all equal in His eyes. It was a radical thing for Paul to write, there is no Jew nor Gentile. There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. Because in, Jew, in Jewish homes growing up, males were taught this prayer. And he went, Lord, I thank you that I am not a woman, that I am not a Gentile, and that I am not a slave. It was one of the prayers they learned growing up. And Paul comes along and he says, there's no difference. There is no difference. All of those human distinctions that we try to make up, there's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. And I've been in so many churches that have certain criterion. And where you fit puts you somewhere lower down on the ladder. Some churches, people who have been through a divorce, just not quite there yet. And they never will be allowed to be. They'll just be a little bit less than everybody else in the church. Some churches has to do with alcohol. Other churches it has to do with... It's different. But we're always looking for ways to put ourselves a little bit better. And he says, there's no difference. We're related to each other. And there is something that happens in a family relationship where we learn the worth and the value of everyone else. I remember when our kids were growing up and they would have a fight, you know, and, and our daughter would say, I hate my brother. And we would say, no, you love your brother. I hate my No, you love your brother. You may not like him right now, but you love your brother. We are meant to live in love. And our differences are the things that teach us that love. And we all have weaknesses, and we all have faults, and we all have strengths, and we make up for each other, and we learn to function together as a family. We share in a life together. And God designed it that way. And yet, though He loves us all as His family, He sees each of us as individual children. He says, he goes on and says, because we're his children, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but God's own child. Abba, Father. That is the most personal, that is the most intimate of, of, of names. It is the name that a little baby calls his dad with his first words. Papa, Daddy. He sees us that way. Every one of us, individually and unique. And it is through our uniqueness that He works in and each every one of us. In each and every one of us. We all have different temperaments. We all have different personalities. And any parent in here knows that about their kids. They're all different. But you love every one of them. Uniquely for who... You know, that is the thing. The parent has this unique ability to love every one of their kids equally. Even the black sheep of the family. You never stop loving them. That's one of the things that I've discovered. I will always be a dad. I always will be. Our kids are grown up. They're out on their own now. But I'm still dad. And that will never change. I will always love them. No matter where they go, what they do, how far away they might, I will always love them. That's how God treats us. And in that, we are to treat each other. One of the great tasks of a parent is to try to be fair. 
You know, you try it best to be fair. And, and one child gets more responsibility than others, or, or one has more discipline issues than others, you know. And, and you're trying to be fair. And sometimes as a kid, I know I didn't understand that because I got more spankings than I think any of my other siblings combined. I was the strong-willed child. Those who know me, nodding yes. <laughs> Hasn't changed a whole lot in 30, 40, 50 years. I required more discipline than like my younger sister who saw all the discipline that I got. She goes, I'm not going there. I'm going to be a good kid. And sometimes that would seem unfair. How come I always get the spanking? How come I always get the blame? How come... You know? And sometimes it feels like that in your relationship with God. How come I'm the one that always has to go through this kind of stuff? How come this stuff happens to me and not to... And there's a really great principle. It's all the way back in John's Gospel. Where Jesus is telling John about what's going to happen to him. And he looks over... Uh, excuse me, to Peter. And he, Peter looks over his shoulder back to John, who's behind them. And he turns around and he says, well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says these words, and you can write them down. It's the witty principle, W-I-T-T-Y. He said, if I should have him remain alive until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. W-I-T-T-Y. What is that to you? However God might work in somebody else's life, what is that to you? He's going to work in your life individually. And when we understand that, we are free to be ourselves in community with everyone else. Paul even wrote about his weakness. He said, even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were Christ Jesus himself. He said, when I came to you, I was ill, I was weak, but you accepted me the way that I was, and it resulted in life for you. And that's what happens. When we accept each other as we are, it results in life for each other. We're related, not rivals. And in this relationship as a family, now we live by promise and not by performance. And that's the third distinction that he makes. The inheritance de- if inheritance depends on the law, then it longer, longer depends on a promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. You read through Scripture and you find very often the language that God uses is the language of destiny, not past history. Do you notice that? When God intervenes in somebody's life, when God comes forward and reveals Himself to somebody or speaks words to somebody, it is always about their destiny. It's about their future. It's about where they're going. It's very, very seldom about their past. And that's how God treats His children. And every parent here knows that. That's how you treat your children. You don't keep punishing them for things that are past. You want to keep moving them forward. And that's what God does. It's all about promise. He told Abraham, leave your comfort, leave your family, leave what you know, and go to the land, I will show you. And he wasn't given a AAA map. And he wasn't given a GPS. It was just every day waking up and discovering what that next step was going to be. And he says, that's what the life of faith is about. It's trusting me. There's no roadmaps to it. And it's going to look a little bit different for you than anybody else. But God is leading. And it says that Abraham believed God and he was credited to him as righteousness. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham didn't do it perfectly. You can read his story in Genesis. He made a lot of mistakes. He made a lot of mistakes. God had promised him, I'll make of you a great nation. You're going to have a son by your wife Sarah, and you're going to have a, make a great nation of that. 
And after about 20, 25 years or so, and still hadn't had a kid, thought, well, maybe God needs some help. So Sarah suggested to her husband, Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a child with her? And they did. And it has caused trouble ever since. God doesn't need your help. And then once, for self-preservation, they went down into Egypt, and, and, and it said Abraham's wife, Sarah, was beautiful. And he was afraid that if the king saw this beautiful wife of his, that they would kill Abraham and take his wife as his own. So he said, when we go down there, he said, tell him you're my sister. We're just going to pretend you're my sister, which caused all kinds of trouble. And it turned out for the bad. And he didn't do that once. He did that twice. The very same thing. Self-protection, self-interest, self-promotion. Let me help, God. I got to do it my way. And every time he did, he got in the way. If Abraham was ever up for performance review, he would have been let go a long time ago. You know, really good, really, Abraham, you're doing excellent on the leaving the family. You know, but this thing with the wife and the sister is not working, you know. You got to quit doing that. If it was about performance, he would have failed. It's about faith. It was about trusting. The real freedom comes when you're able to trust God and his character. See, we live by this myth that if there's something that I can do, then I'm in control. And if I'm in control, then I am free. When just the opposite is the case. I am freest when I learn that there is a God who loves me, who has my best interest at heart, whose commands and directions and imperatives are for my benefit. And the family that he has put me in is for my growth and development and maturity. And I just learn to trust him day after day. For all of his mistakes, what Abraham did do right is he kept trusting. He kept trusting. And that's all that God asks of us. That we have the faith and trust in his character. That he is going to come through for us. That he will watch over us. That he will protect us. And even if things do not work out in this life the way that we had expected, what he is doing in us is creating us character and values that are all set for eternity. And that's what you've got to be able to trust. When our kids were growing up, we had certain house rules. We had curfew. We had all of these things that were required of our kids. And we expected them to obey those things. But the end goal that we had in mind was not that they would be our trained puppies, but that they would become free individuals in their own right. And that's what God is doing in your life. And if you can trust that, you will find real freedom. Paul wrote, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in that slavery. What does that free life look like? How do I know how to make those right choices? You're going to make mistakes along the way. You keep trusting. God can make sense even out of your mistakes. About eight or nine years ago, as a church, we were going through a similar study, looking at Galatians. And it was a verse that popped out to me that I'd never seen before. Or I'm sure I'd read it a number of times, but it just stuck out to me in a way that I'd never seen it before. And as Paul is talking about all this rule keeping and circumcision and eating, and all these, eating meat or not eating meat and all these other rules and regulations, and he says, none of those things matter. He said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through Christ. You want to know what this life of faith is all about? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
That's all that matters. When it comes to a major decision in my life, how do I make the right choice? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you could sum up the whole life of a Christ follower in one sentence, that would be it. It is simply faith expressing itself through love. Believing that there's a God that is trustworthy and it doesn't depend on all of my faith or or psyching it up or earning it in any way. It's just simply trusting that He's got my best interest at heart. And even His commands, though they might be difficult, are for my obedience, for my benefit, for my life. Does that make sense? Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace extended to us. Thank you, Lord, that even in the hard things that might sometimes challenge us and stretch us and and cause us to, to, to chafe against your directions and your guidance, to understand at the very heart it's because you are a loving Father who sees each of us individually, who knows what is best for our lives, And in obedience, we can truly find the life you have for us. Lord, let us live in that freedom each and every day. An adventure, an exploration, a better understanding of what you have meant to us. And what you've meant to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.